This is Everyday Wellness, a podcast dedicated to helping you achieve your health and wellness goals and provide practical strategies that you can use in your real life. And now, here is your host, nurse practitioner Cynthia Thurlow. Today, I had the opportunity to connect with Autumn Smith, who is one of the co-founders of Paleo Valley, which admittedly is one of my favorite socially conscious companies that's out there. Their mission is to create products that live up to their own strict standards and always prioritize health over profit. We dove deep into Autumn's backstory, her pain to purpose. We touched on topics like the use of seed oils, and we are completely in alignment in terms of looking at quality of fats, saturated fats, avoiding seed oils, quality omega-3s and omega-6s, really focusing on animal-based protein diets and an ancestral health perspective, eating for satiety, which is certainly something that many Americans lack, and that's why their appetites are out of control. We talked about regenerative farming practices and agriculture, the value of pasture-raised animals, the impact of certain types of toxins like glyphosate that are impacting our health and our gut microbiomes, how many conventionally produced products are fooling us with greenwashing strategies, the value of bringing high quality products that are wholesaled like Wild Pastures, which is a company that Autumn and her family have uh, worked very closely with so that they can bring pasture-raised animal products to the general public at much more affordable price points. I hope you will love our conversation. I know that I will have Autumn back again. I actually want to dive a little bit deeper into ecosystems, agribusiness, regenerative farming practices, and I'm sure after listening to her, you'll want to know more as well. I'm so excited and delighted to have you with me today. And I would love, I know we had, you know, an IG story live and we talked a lot about your story, but I know for the benefit of listeners who maybe missed your story and missed your passion project and how you kind of pivoted your life, turned your life around, what is your story? Like what brought you to where you are today? Before we started recording, we were talking about the fact that you are doing your doctorate, which I love and how you've really, you know, pivoted your entire lifestyle to embrace this new way of living. How did that start for you? What was that journey like? As with a lot of people, I think with a lot of struggle, (laughs) I mean, a lot of struggle. So I have wonderful parents, grew up in a small town in Montana, but when I got to be about 10 years old, I started to suffer from pretty debilitating digestive issues Mm -hmm. and would just wake up in the middle of the night in excruciating pain, but it didn't happen all the time. So it was kind of intermittent. My life became unpredictable. We went to the doctors and uh, in my small town and they didn't really know what to do. They just said, you have irritable bowel syndrome, take some gas X and it's stress related. I was like, okay. And I just continued on until about high school when things got more challenging and then mental health challenges started to set in. I didn't know it at the time, but there's that intimate connection between the brain and the gut, which people are now elucidating beautifully, but anxiety, depression set in, eating challenges set in. And then we went to the psychotherapists and psychiatrists and they gave me the antidepressants and we went through a litany of them and they made me feel awful. And like, I, 
wasn't even myself. And so I got off of them and my skin started to break out. And then I realized, wow, I'm going to manage. I'm not even going to be able to thrive here. I just need to kind of hang on and get through each day. And substances seemed like a good way to kind of calm my anxiety. And uh, so I got into all sorts of substances and it got so bad that my parents actually kicked me out of my house (laughs) before I graduated high school. Yeah. So I ended, I finished high school, even though I was living on my own and Luckily, I always had a passion for learning and dance. And so I did continue on to high or to college. And then I went to Los Angeles and became a dancer. And on the outside, I was actually a celebrity fitness trainer. I was in great shape. But if you saw me on my off times and my skin breaking out, me feeling like a total lie and me being so bloated (laughs) that I looked pregnant at night. My husband, when he finally moved in with me said, sweetie, you are suffering (laughs) in silence. You're a mess and you are smiling and you are making the best of it, but this isn't what your life should be like. And so he got onto Google after we visited some doctors in Los Angeles at the time who told me the same thing, irritable bowel syndrome, you know, there's nothing you can really do. And we changed our diet because back in 2007, a few people on the internet were talking about the fact that chronic digestive issues could be addressed through dietary change. And so we did it. And in 30 days, my digestive issues were gone. It was, and I didn't know it, but over the course of the next year, my mental health came back. I was like, wow, I'm this stable, resilient, kind of excited, enthusiastic person that I didn't know for so many years. And so even though I had a wonderful job with Tracy Anderson, I quit that job to go back and learn what had just happened and literally transform my life. And opening a company that had the supplies and the food products was more about how do we have a life, not spend all my time in the kitchen, which I don't want to do, I'm not good at, (laughs) and still live in this way with these healthy, nourishing foods that I had come to depend on and actually thrive because of. And so that's why we founded our company eventually too. That's a really inspiring story. And I think for anyone that's listening, I like to align myself with my guests. And so as someone who was allopathic medicine trained, I was writing prescriptions. I worked in ER medicine, cardiology. And as you can imagine, there was a lot of prescriptive writing. And I just got to a point where I was like, we're not doing enough. You know, it all starts with food. So I love that you, you know, healed yourself through changing your diet And in terms of irritable bowel syndrome, if listeners don't realize this, irritable bowel syndrome is more often than not related to food sensitivities, but we don't talk enough to our patients about this. And so on so many levels, it's oftentimes things like gluten and grains and dairy and processed sugars and alcohol that can really exacerbate these symptoms. Were there specific foods for you that when you eliminated them from your diet, you saw significant improvement? I'm just curious if it's one of the ones that I mentioned, the ones that are are most typically implicated in inflammation. Oh yeah. Well, I (laughs) was a dancer, a young dancer. Mm -hmm. So I kind of learned, well, a calorie is a calorie. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't really matter what you're eating as long as you're eating enough or not enough in ballet land. But so I was living on protein bars, soy protein, and all of those crazy additives. I was eating, you know, bread, garlic, naan, all of these processed products, first of all, but I did identify a very potent wheat sensitivity. Gluten is definitely an issue for me at that time, because my gut was so damaged. Dairy was definitely a thing for me. Sugar, I can bring it in. It just, I have to keep my blood sugar stable, or I start to go into these highs and lows, this like depressive place. And funny enough, 
garlic is a huge trigger for my skin. It's not always a digestive trigger, but my skin, I've noticed it definitely makes me break out consistently. And so those are the big ones, but you know, soy I'm also allergic to. So through trial and error, I've I've identified a lot of foods, but I think the biggest needle movers were definitely gluten, dairy, Mm -hmm. sugar, and garlic for me. That's fascinating. And this is really the value of bio-individuality. So for each one of us, there are some big things, you know, gluten and dairy in particular, but you're finding that, you know, the alimum, you know, series of like vegetables that caused, you know, a lot of inflammation for you in particular, you know, for me, I personally find that if I have too many nightshades, so if I, during the summer, eat too many tomatoes, or if I have some eggplant, I will get some plantar fasciitis symptoms. And so my family thinks I'm completely crazy when I say this, but I always say like, if I have foot pain, cause I otherwise have no aches and pains whatsoever, that's my tell. And so during the summer, I ate a lot of tomatoes and that's usually my body's way of saying like back off, like no more nightshades, take a break, seemingly benign foods that, you know, in specific people can really cause a lot of inflammation and discomfort in some instances, bloating or skin eruptions. And so I'm fascinated with Tracy Anderson, by the way, I just, I find the workouts that she does, they're incredibly challenging. They're deceivingly challenging. Like you see them and you're like, that can't possibly be that hard. And it really is that hard. Oh, Um, so you were probably with her at the beginning. Like I'm assuming it at the beginning stages, it must've been interesting to do that. Now, do you still incorporate, I would imagine as a lifelong dancer, you probably movement and exercise is probably a significant contribution to mental health, physical health, et cetera. Oh man. First of all, let me just say, I think Tracy Anderson is one of like the geniuses among us. Like she is so special in so many ways. And she's developed this system where she wakes up all the different muscles in the body, rather than you're going to lift for these big muscles, your quads and your biceps. And it's all these little accessory muscles that she's found out how to access. And it's literally life-changing. I highly recommend it. A lot of work on the spine as well as the abs. And just, she's basically teaching the world how to dance and move their body in a way that is supportive of health and just like finding joy and movement. It's gorgeous. So I do that. I mean, I'm still a Tracy Anderson member and I do that most weeks. I change my exercise during my cycle. (laughs) So in the beginning, you know, in the follicular phase, I'm doing a lot of Tracy. I'm adding a little more cardio. I have a very interesting relationship with cardio. I found that I was using it to change my mood, to really ameliorate some anxiety that I hadn't known I really had. So I do that, but a lot less than I used to because I'm taking it upon myself to figure out how to address that without that. But also I do yoga. I was a yoga teacher. And so getting into more of my luteal phase, I bring in yoga every single day, some power every other day of my cycle, in addition to Tracy. And so, and you know, I hike outside, but exercise is more effective for mental health than anything you could take. And so I've absolutely realized when I don't move, I'm not the person that I want to be. And it's not anymore an unhealthy relationship. I think it could have been classified as such at one point in time, but I just know if I want to feel good, this is something I have to do. I'm not going to shame myself if I don't have time, but I'm just going to know that I'm not going to be my best self without a little movement or exercise on the daily. It's a really powerful realization when you recognize that you choose to do certain types of exercise, whether it's aligned with cycle syncing, and that's really what you're speaking to in the beginning half of our menstrual cycle, estrogen predominates, 
second half of the menstrual cycle after ovulation, progesterone predominates. And so it's very aligned with, you know, progesterone's up, which is kind of the mellow sister to the more type A estrogen makes sense (laughs) that yoga would fit more nicely. And it's interesting for me, even when I'm talking to women about fasting, we fast differently depending on where we are in our cycle. So it's not, you know, 28 days out of the month, we're doing these same exact pattern. Obviously, if you're a man or a menopausal woman, it's a little different. But when we have those cycling hormones every month, being responsive to that is certainly very important. And so I'm curious, and I know this is a great interest of yours, is the quality of the ingredients we consume, Mm -hmm. not just elimination diets, but when I was doing my research, we're very aligned on so many principles. So when we're talking about other types of inflammatory foods and we're talking about seed oils, let's unpack, you know, I've had the delight of having Dr. Kate Shanahan on the podcast. And so she's definitely one of these physician researchers that's out there trying to educate the public and the community about the dangers of highly processed seed oils, which are food-like substances. They really aren't, there's little to no nutritional value in these but let's talk a little bit about seed oils because the assumption is made that if it's sold in the grocery store, then it must be healthy. My youngest and I went to see a play in Washington, DC over the weekend, and we were in Whole Foods killing time. This is a sad fact is that oftentimes if I'm trying to kill time, wherever I am, like, let's just go to Whole Foods. I'll make an excuse to go there. And my son made me take a photo of this big display of canola oil. And he was like, mom, they actually sell seed oil and canola oil in Whole Foods. And I was like, yes. And that's where consumers need to educate themselves. So let's unpack what seed oils are, what they do to our bodies, why we want to avoid them, why we want to read food labels and why we want to ask questions when we go to restaurants or we're eating outside our home, because it's important for us to understand they sneak into everything. Yes. It's so devastating for me that Whole Foods and everyone, so many other health food stores still believe this. And kind of, I want to touch on the origin of that is essentially they're polyunsaturated, a lot of them. And this kind of stems from that fear of saturated fatty acids that happened, you know, in the mid 1950s, when there was some research to suggest the more saturated dietary fat you consumed, the greater your risk for heart disease. Now we know that isn't true. Ansel Keys, when he originally presented this seven country study, there were actually 22 countries with available data. Not all of them fit this nice tight correlation that he presented. And just other subsequent research has proven that saturated fat you know, and cholesterol are not the dietary villains that we once believed they were. But dietary dogma doesn't die easily. So there's still a lot of people believing we just need to get rid of animal fats too. But when you look at the origin of seed oils too, like Procter and Gamble started using them for soap making, right? They were interested in using these different ingredients uh, that were cheaper because they used to use a lot of lard. So they found a way to kind of hydrogenate foods or seed oils, cottonseed oil, I think is how they began, and then use it for their soap making and then created trans fat with Crisco where they kind of hydrogenate it, which means turn it into a solid. And then based on no evidence of their safety in humans, because at that time it didn't really matter in order to market a product as healthy, there weren't any regulation, there wasn't regulation. They were just like, no, this is better. This is better because we say it is. <laughs> and because it's this new technology <laughs> and um, animal fats, even though we've been eating them for the entirety of our evolution, they are the bad guy, even though 
when our disease rates really started to skyrocket is after the advent and incorporation of these other oils into our food-based system. So hydrogenation is one kind of seed oil. Trans fats are largely eliminated, probably not entirely yet, but there is legislation to eliminate them. But what isn't being regulated are these seed oils, like you said, that are extracted from, you know, canola and there's safflower and sunflower and cottonseed, all of these different oils that are still highly, highly processed using hexane and other chemicals, and then also highly polyunsaturated. Now, the problem is saturation actually is protective against oxidation, right? And that is where you're going to find a lot of your animal fats and the traditional fats that we've been using for centuries. And then you have these highly unstable oils, they're polyunsaturated fatty acids, which are prone to oxidation. It's funny when they are used in fast food restaurants, they can actually create this like grease-like substance on the uniforms of people who work there. And like their uniforms will actually like combust because Oxidation is not something we want in our bodies when we oxidize, thought to be one of the primary drivers of disease and aging. And so when these oils get oxidized and become rancid through their processing, it's not good for us to eat them. And it just surprises me that we have become so misinformed and kind of followed this logic that this would be better, even though it's a novel creation that hasn't ever really been tested when and turn our backs on traditional fats that we have literally been eating for a long, long time. And there's even been research to suggest this was one really interesting trial, the LA Veterans Administration Hospital Study, where they looked at eating two different dining halls, essentially. They were looked at eating traditional fats like butter versus eating vegetable oils. And what they did notice, they looked at it for about eight years and it looked like the death rates in both were similar, but what they didn't really report on was that at year five rates of death from cancer shot up and they got way higher in the vegetable oil group. And the authors concluded that you should have longer trials. Trials over five years or under five years are not adequate, but that's not what they're doing today. And they're still being touted as healthy oils based on, you know, the vitamin E and other nutrients, but not (laughs) looking at the fact that they are highly processed things that we have not been consuming very long and are prone to oxidation. And so I think they're very, very dangerous. And I think they're one of the things if people will start anywhere, (laughs) just upgrading the quality of their fats. I mean, these are actually incorporated into our cell membranes, right? And when their composition of the cell membrane changes, we can have inflammation becomes more rampant. You're actually competing for turning specific types of fat into other types of fat, like omega-3 and omega-6 types of fatty acids. And when those enzymes are used up by the oxid or the omega-6 types fats, then it becomes a more inflammatory environment. And that's not something we want. And so I do think the quality animal fats, high quality animal fats are absolutely wonderful. They've been nourishing us since the beginning of time and turning our backs on the highly processed vegetable oils, I think is one of the best steps you can take. Today's podcast is sponsored by NutriSense. It combines cutting-edge technology and human expertise so you can see how your body responds to different types of nutrition, stress, 
exercise, sleep, and where you are in your menstrual cycle in real time. And by pairing a continuous glucose monitor with their app and expert nutritional guidance, NutriSense can help you reach your health goals. And the best part is it's not just a program where they send you the CGM and you have to figure it out on your own. Each subscription plan includes one month of free expert nutritionist support. Your nutritionist will work with you one-on-one, interpreting your data, and providing customized advice to help you reach your health goals. The last time I had my CGM on, my registered dietitian and I troubleshooted over some specific concerns that I had. And whether you're aiming to lose weight, stabilize your energy, or just feel better overall, NutriSense offers the guidance and support you need. And lasting sustainable change takes time and can be achieved through a longer term subscription. That's why I encourage my patients and clients to consider three, six, or 12-month subscriptions where it's actually less expensive and allows you to not only achieve your goals, but also to ensure that you stick to your healthy lifestyle for the long term. As I've mentioned before, I have found the CGMs I've used through NutriSense to be incredibly insightful, specifically to carbohydrate tolerance. I would not have known that plantains spiked my blood sugar without this information. It's also been hugely helpful for tailoring to workouts and sleep quality. And so for me, even though I am metabolically healthy, I find the insights to be particularly helpful to tailor my lifestyle changes to my blood sugar. Visit NutriSense.io slash EWP and use the code EWP for $30 off plus one month of free nutritionist support. Be sure to let them know you're a listener of the Everyday Wellness Podcast when they ask you how you heard about them. This is one of my favorite ways to take care of my health and one of my top recommendations for all of my patients and clients. Do you find yourself struggling to get a good night's sleep? If so, you may be dealing with a hidden mineral deficiency. It is not at all uncommon in perimenopause and menopause to deal with sleep challenges. And we know that one of many contributory reasons for poor sleep can be a reduction in specific minerals that help regulate sleep quality, including magnesium, which is involved in GABA, which is our body's main calming neurotransmitter. We also know that we need potassium to create melatonin. And this is a hormone that is a master antioxidant, but is also utilized to help induce sleep. We also think about things like zinc, which can balance excitatory neurotransmitters like glutamate. And if it's overactive, meaning if your glutamate levels are too high, it can prevent your brain from becoming more relaxed and inducing sleep. And lastly, selenium increases both our deep sleep and sleep duration. All these minerals matter a lot for sleep and any imbalances or deficits can have a major impact on the quality of sleep you get each night. And that's why I love Beam Minerals. They offer a full spectrum mineral supplement that gives you every essential mineral your body needs in the right doses, all in a highly absorbable liquid form. All you do is take a shot of bean minerals about an hour before bed. Don't worry, it tastes like water. And you'll replenish all of your body's minerals in about 30 seconds and give your brain what it needs for deep restorative sleep. 
I've been using this product over the last several months. I've really been impressed with the improvement in my sleep metrics, which I like to share on social media with my followers. And if you want a simple way to improve your sleep, head over to www.bminerals.com and use code Cynthia for 20% off your first order. That's www.bminerals.com and use code Cynthia for 20% off your first order. It's interesting throughout the year, I do these little videos or vignettes on social media about how to navigate Costco, how to navigate Trader Joe's, how to navigate the grocery store. And my one resounding rule is no seed oils. And so I've done ones on like, and I recognize there are people out there who never eat a bottle dressing and that's great, but I'm a realist and I recognize not everyone wants to make their own dressing. And so as one example, I did one in Whole Foods and in Whole Foods, I was trying to find a clean dressing and of which there were not many, but I did find a couple. And so I was sharing the brands and talking about it. And, you know, I affectionately refer to Trader Joe's sometimes as Trader Junk because it's very hard to find (laughs) products that are processed that don't have seed oils in them to a point that or soy. Those are my two kind of non-negotiables trying to find those things. And my kids now read the labels. And so it becomes this game to try to find as many things as we can or not without either of those, but it's how you can take something seemingly relatively healthy and make it unhealthy. And for anyone that's listening, you know, when we're talking about seed oils, I'm not talking about avocado oil. I'm not talking about coconut oil. We're not talking about extra virgin olive oil. We are talking about these highly processed refined oils that that need to be made in factories and are exposed to a lot of toxics, toxins. They're exposed to high heat. They are manipulated significantly. If you want to find something really fascinating, if you want to dive down a rabbit hole, go Google or go to YouTube and you know plug in how to make canola oil and you will be stunned. It's disgusting. You'll never want to consume it again. But what I find really interesting is we really look at the research of the advent of seed oils and the indoctrination of seed oils into the processed food industry and it correlates pretty well with the rise in obesity. And so I like to remind people, Dr. Ben Bickman is one of these insulin researchers who does such an amazing job. And if you don't follow Dr. Ben, please do. He's amazing. Mm. And so he's an insulin researcher. And one of his recent shares was that the most consumed fat in the United States is soybean oil because it oh. proliferates in the processed food industry. And we as Americans eat a highly processed diet. We know that like 88.2% of Americans are metabolically unhealthy. So it really is a small, but very sad portion of the population that's avoiding these kinds of toxic ingredients. So if you do nothing else and you're navigating the grocery store, really just read those food labels and try to avoid them. Because I dare you to try to find in the grocery store a bread or a lot of the, you know, chips and crackers that don't have these things in them. I now have teenagers And I have to be a realist. And so my kids know there are certain brands that we can go to where I will let them buy Siete or any number of other small amount of brands that are out there where, you know, they can have a chip or they can have something where I don't have to worry about that, but it really is challenging. And the last thing I want to dovetail into that is I did a a discussion at an event in October talking about metabolic flexibility and inflexibility and was kind of tracing the concept of seed oils because people will talk about a specific type of fat, like linoleic acid. And people say, well, that you can find that in seed oils. You can also find it in meat. Yes, but a very different proportions. And so you're really looking at an avocado or a piece of meat. Yes, may have some of these 
fats, but not to the proportion which we find in seed oils. And so if you want to really drive down inflammation, if you want to lessen the likelihood you're going to develop insulin resistance, you really want to get diligent about reading food labels. And as I always say, I want the message to be a positive one. So there are lots of alternatives. There are definitely things that are out there. And what I find is when you find a chip or a cracker that doesn't have seed oils in it, they come in smaller boxes and bags, you eat less of them. And, you know, to me, it's a pain point. If I know my bag of who crackers is like $5, I'm going to enjoy every last cracker and then I'm not going to buy another box for a while. So for me, I look at it as it's, it's a limiting thing. Like my kids know when the box is gone, we're done. You know, we don't need to have copious, massive Costco sized bags of junk <laughs> because it's very easy to overeat them. And it's very easy to get to a point where you're just consuming far more processed foods than ideally we want to be. Absolutely. And I also want to add to the quality of the animal products. Like you said, it matters. We actually have a pork farmer on our team who has created the most nutrient dense pork and get this, this is pretty shocking to most people. So omega six to omega three fatty acid ratio, we want to keep it, you know, four to one, one to one. Historically, we have over 20 to one right now conventionally raised pork has a ratio of about 35 to one. So through his different breeding practices and using pigs that actually work very well on pasture, he was actually able to test if I fed half grain and half grass or as much grass as possible. And he got down when he fed the pigs actual grass, it was down to a five to one ratio. And so you'll see this kind of throughout the animals too, in beef, in eggs, in dairy, in pastured pork, but you can significantly change that fatty acid ratio simply by feeding them in a way that is more appropriate and in alignment with nature, right? Pasture feeding, especially when they can have these nice, diverse, lush green pastures, which I know if it's overwhelming to know where to find that, we can talk about that too, but just know that, yeah, getting seed oils out and then also watching the quality of your animal products, especially pork, which was really surprising to me, is a great move as well. It's interesting, the city that we just moved from, there was this amazing pork farmer and we got to know the, I mean, when I say know the pigs, it's not like on a personal <laughs> basis, but we got to see the happy pigs and yeah. they lived amazing lives. And I think it's really important you know, as we kind of evolve, because when you're making small changes, I always say small changes have a large net impact, but it's impossible to change everything all at once. But once you know better, you do better. And so, you know, to us, it's a priority to try to find the the cleanest animal-based protein that we can find, whether it's wild-caught fish or pasture-raised animals. You know, if you go to your farmer's market, this is a great like starting point for a lot of people is go to the farmer's market, get to know the farmers that are asked them questions. They want to share their information and their expertise. And if you buy eggs at a farmer's market, they're going to look a lot different. The yolks look very, very different because the chickens eat different types of you know, food. And what I was surprised to find out, maybe you weren't, but I was <laughs> chickens are like carnivores. I didn't realize that they actually eat bugs and worms. And I was like, Oh, I just thought they ate like grains. I had no idea. And so the yolks from the pastured eggs or from the pastured hens look very different. The yolks are really vibrant and bright, or even if you kind of, you know, decide you want to get more exotic. And if you're doing quail eggs or duck eggs, there's a whole different taste profile that you're, you may not even ever been exposed to. So don't be afraid to try different proteins. Like that's one thing that we kind of are down like the bison elk 
wild boar. You know, we've tried ostrich this year. Nice. We had elk for the first time we were in Montana, but be open to trying. And I always tell my kids, like, if you try it and you don't like it, not a big deal. Like at least we can check the box, but we definitely want to be trying different types of protein. Like don't just stay eating chicken and maybe all you do is chicken and like bacon. It's like, okay, let's try something new. Maybe we're going to have grass fed steak. Maybe we're going to try some bison. There's a lot of what I consider to be entry level, like exotic meats that aren't, you know, what I would not describe as weird or super gamey. And that's the question I get. Like people are like, bison just sounds so exotic. And I'm like, we actually like bison more than we like beef. We've been surprised to see that. So when you're talking and connecting with your customers, what are some of the things that you use as a starting point to help people navigate making better choices about the quality of animals they're consuming? Like how do they source out reputable slash cleaner, safer farmers to purchase from, I mean, certainly I always say that, you know, you do what your budget permits because there may be people listening. They're like, listen, I cannot buy all grass fed all the time. And that's okay. We're not saying that, but it's like, once you know more, then you're going to be more conscientious about, you know, where you're procuring your meat from or your fish where your eggs for that matter. But what are some of the recommendations you have when you're working with people to allow them to kind of safely integrate these new practices into their lifestyle without busting their budgets? (laughs) Okay. I have several. I want to mention two things I think are really important for what you just said too, though. When you look at those nutritional differences, they've actually been demonstrated to change things about human health, which I think is even more incentivizing, right? So in one trial, they looked at wild kangaroo versus CAFO roost meat, and they're actually able to reduce levels of inflammation and they've changed cholesterol profiles and triglyceride levels. So there's not a lot of research, but there is some. The other thing I wanted to mention is yes, wild meats, different meats, they're going to have a different flavor, right? Based on the way that they're raised. And Dr. Fred Provenza has actually been studying the way that these secondary compounds. So most of us are aware of probably like 15 nutrients. It's basically what we track on the label, but there's actually like thousands, like tens of thousands of other compounds that actually affect human health. And some of them, terpenoids, carotenoids, phenols, they have anti-diabetic, anti-inflammatory, antidepressive, but also satiety enhancing mechanisms. So he's looking at the way it might taste a little bit different, but those signals and those other compounds actually let us know it's time to stop eating, right? We don't get those in a lot of our foods today, which is why I think a lot of us are continuing to eat more than we might need because our food is raised in a way that doesn't allow us to access those signals anymore. So that's another, like, it might taste weird, but it's also probably for a good reason and something maybe you want to push a little bit past. So in order to like get started, I would just start usually have people upgrade one meal a week. Just look at I'm going to find out the origins of this one meal, right? So just choose one particular type of protein. And if you're going to focus on beef, the questions you want to be asking, if you're actually able to access the farmer or looking at the packaging on the company is 100% grass fed and grass finished. And one easy question is, have they ever been fed grain? Because Grass-fed is an unregulated term and all cows are grass-fed in the beginning of their lives, but it matters how they're fed in the end of their lives. Are they fattened up on grain or not? That's again, going to change the nutritional profile. And also if it's raised in confinement, there's pesticides and antibiotics being used and often hormones. So just 
oftentimes when they are not feeding grain, they are taking into consideration these other things as well. So that's a really good place to start for grass-fed beef. The best case scenario is they're being raised in a way that regenerates the environment also. We can talk about that also, but there isn't regenerative agriculture is an emerging, very important effort, but it isn't one that's like on a label necessarily. But grass-fed and grass-finished 100% and asking, has it ever been fed grain? That's a great place to start. And I think it's interesting that you were surprised that chickens were omnivores. They actually a lot of them are advertising vegetarian fed, all vegetarian fed as if that's a good thing. But again, this goes against the chicken's biology. That really means they're probably raised in confinement, right? They're not getting outside because if they were, they would be eating bugs and all of these other things that they, you know, worms are designed to consume. So pastured poultry is my favorite cage-free, free range. They're a step in the right direction. What that often means is they have access to the outdoors, but that they're not necessarily going to be out there. There's probably like a little door in this warehouse. (laughs) Right. See the grass, but they can't actually be on it. Yeah. And they probably don't. And then they're probably raised with antibiotics and Mm. antibiotic resistance is a, a very important threat. So pastured poultry is the best way to go. And birds do get a little grain. I'm not afraid of that. You want to do, you know, non-GMO grain if possible, but pastured poultry, look where they're living. Can they get outside? Those are the important things to consider. Same with pigs. We've all seen the horrible pictures of the pigs in the little tiny crates, raising confined animal feeding operations. So we want to know, are they on pasture? Like I mentioned, our farmer is using a specific breed that can eat a lot of grass and also letting them be rotated around on pastures so that the land is able to recover. He's planting trees, he's getting into agroforestry. So there are ways to raise pigs that are really beneficial for the environment and do not involve being in a warehouse, in a crate or any of this cruel tree. So that would just be a cruelty. So that would just pastured pig too, but you have to kind of dig in you're not going to find it at the supermarket, unfortunately. Pastured poultry is really hard to find. And our solution to that was our company, Wild Pastures. And we can talk more about that. Or also, I'm going to give a shout out to one of our pork farmers, um, Singing Prairie Farms. They do a really nice pastured pork stick. We're going to be moving into that realm soon. But just if you want a simple way to upgrade your pork and be convinced or be sure that you're not getting that inflammatory pork, that's a great way to go. Or you can do our wild pastures meat delivery service. But And when it comes to eggs, like you said, same thing. We want to see those bright yellow yolks. When I first went down to Uruguay, I was like, what is this? Why are they orange? (laughs) And that is the difference because there's more antioxidants, there's more nutrients. It's a different food than Mm -hmm. animals, chickens, hens that are raised in confinement. And it's reflected in the quality of their yolk. So pastured eggs also. I've seen some organic pastured eggs in the store. Yes, they are definitely more expensive, but again, they're very much more nutrient dense. You have to think even beyond what it's doing in your body. Like what are we, every time we're purchasing something, what are we supporting on the back end? Like, is there an externality that we aren't considering like what's happening to the environment. What about antibiotic? Are we worried about antibiotic use? Are we actually contributing to the production of grains, which is actually further destroying the environment if it's they're raised in, inappropriately and, and on and on. So yes, you might buy less of them, but like you said, you'll enjoy them more. They'll be nutrient dense and you can feel really, really good that the foods are not only nourishing you, but also the environment in a larger sense. 
Well, and I think, you know, you really started that segue off beautifully talking about satiety because I always say the most important macronutrient from my perspective is protein. I find most, if not all women eat grossly less than what they should be. And so I'm very aligned with Dr. Gabrielle Lyon, who talks a lot, one Mm. gram per pound of ideal body weight. Most women are probably getting 50 or 60 grams in a day. We should really be aiming for closer to a hundred, if not more. And I find that better quality, the meat or fish or eggs, the more satiated I am without question. Like if I have four or five, because I love omelets, I love deviled eggs. Um, (laughs) I'm like a big egg aficionado. It's almost embarrassing. My kids are like, how many eggs did you eat today? I'm like, I don't know. But I find that they're so satiating that I won't be able to eat more. Like I may have my non-starchy vegetable and whatever the protein is, but I can't just keep eating like as if we sit down with a bowl of pasta, a bowl of rice, like my teenagers can do, but they're also super active. They're still growing. They're very lean, but they can polish off. I mean, mounds of carbohydrates and they're impervious to it, but they're also growing. But if we as adults consume those types of foods, we are never nearly as satiated. And so you don't register the amount of macros you've consumed, which can set off a cascade of inflammation, insulin response, blood glucose going up. If we're already largely a metabolically unhealthy population, I always say like really try to hit your protein macros, because if you do that, you won't be hungry. (laughs) You won't be hungry in between your meals. And you're certainly not going to have enough room to eat a lot of junk, but you brought up some really important points. You know, you talked about pastured meat, you talked about wild caught fish, We talked about, you know, finding the best quality products you can find. Let's talk a little bit about kind of conventional feedlot meat. You know, you mentioned the antibiotics. I think it's important for people to understand what happens under those conditions. There was a book I read recently that was talking about conventional farming practices, which I think for anyone, you know, especially someone, I'm a huge animal advocate, animal lover. I do eat meat. I don't shy away from eating meat but I was incredibly disturbed at the amount of antibiotics, chemicals, pesticides, et cetera, that these animals are exposed to. And then we're ingesting this. So let's talk a little bit about this, just from an awareness perspective. So people understand like why we are talking, advocating, leaning towards really purchasing, supporting farmers that have different practices. Yes. I think the big one is definitely the antibiotic thing, right? Mm -hmm. 70% of the antibiotics produced are used in animals, right? And there is the beginnings of some sort of regulation around it. Now you're not just supposed to use them to make animals gain weight, but oftentimes because of the conditions they're living in, they are used to prevent illness, Mm -hmm. which allows them to gain weight more quickly. But the problem is when these antibiotics are used, overused, they can allow for the creation of antibiotic resistance bacteria. So when you take an antibiotic, you're going to kill bacteria. Some of them inevitably will survive and then they will thrive, right? And these antibiotic resistant bacteria can get into the environment, right? Because of these conditions and uh, because, you know, what we're using on farms and CAFOs is getting into our waterways and it's getting into our soil. And there is some evidence to suggest there might be trace amounts in the meat products that could potentially be impacting things on a microbiome level and on and on. But 
It is a huge ever looming threat. We do not want our antibiotics to not become useful. We need them. They are life-saving. And if we continue going where we're going, we are headed for disaster, essentially on the antibiotic realm for sure. So we want to ensure that the people who are raising our animals are not misusing antibiotics. The way that our farmers handle that is if an animal is sick, they're not going to let them suffer. They're going to give them antibiotics and they're going to be removed from the program. Okay. So that's just what we do there. And then also pesticides. So because a lot of cows are eating corn and soy, these are a lot of pesticides are often present on corn and soy. So they're eating them, they're consuming them. And again, we're perpetuating their use in the environment. I think it's like three tons of pesticides per person a year is sprayed on our food. Okay. We know that they can impact our gut microbiome. Dr. Stephanie Seneff talks a lot about this, that the shikimate pathway produces certain amino acids and that is disrupted when it comes to glyphosate. We also know that glyphosate is actually more dangerous in the Roundup formula because glyphosate is just the active ingredient, the principal ingredient. But what they don't often test is the total formula, which can be even more toxic. So these pesticides are interfering with our microbiome. They are killing our wildlife. They are not something that we want to be ingesting. And people will argue, oh yes, well, these are safe levels. But what happens when they you consume it over and over? No one's really regulating how much you are consuming. And so I definitely think it's something we really need to be mindful of, especially when it comes to our little people, our children. They are not little humans. They metabolize things differently. This They impact brain function, attentional issues. It's just it runs the gamut. So we really want to be careful with pesticides too. And then hormones, the European union hasn't wanted our beef for a very long time because mm-hmm. they found that there are risks, right? Especially for kids before puberty, you don't want to eat animals that have been given synthetic hormones. And so they've kind of stopped the sale. I think there's a little amounts that are still being able to be accepted as long as it's tested, but hormones, right? When you give an animal synthetic hormones and then you eat that meat, who knows? It could potentially impact your own hormonal levels. And so we definitely want to be careful with that. So our farmers will not be using grains because and pesticides because the animals are eating grass. They're absolutely never using hormones. And then, of course, they're not using antibiotics. And if they do because an animal is suffering, then they're removed from the program. And so for all of those reasons, in addition to the nutritional reasons, it's just really important to know what you're putting into your body and how to avoid you know, soy and corn, the pesticides that come with them, antibiotics and hormones. Have you guys heard about a bioactive whole food on the market with 5,000 published research studies backing it? When my oldest son needed to go on antibiotics a few months ago, I discovered Armra colostrum and the benefits for him and his recovery from being on antibiotics have been instrumental in me now recommending this to my dairy non-sensitive patients and clients. Armra's colostrum strengthens immunity, ignites metabolism, fortifies gut health, promotes hair growth and skin radiance, and powers fitness performance and recovery. My son has mentioned to me over and over again how great his gut feels, how he has improved his digestion and gut function as well. Colostrum is a rich, exclusive source of immunoglobulins or antibodies that optimize our immune defense even during cold and flu season. And we know that mycosal barriers house over 80% of our body's immune cells, including 
including the antibodies IgG and SIG-A. And these immunoglobulins bind and intercept harmful particles like viruses, bacteria, and toxins, blocking them from crossing into the barriers into our bloodstream. And Armrest Colostrum contains the highest levels of SIG-A and IgG to ensure your most fortified first line of protection. It's sustainably sourced, and it's important to know that you want to mix colostrum only with cold liquids or foods or dry scoop it into your mouth. This is also great for the oral microbiome. And we've worked out a special offer for my everyday wellness community where you can receive 15% off your first order. Go to tryarmra.com slash Cynthia15 or enter Cynthia15 to get 15% off your first order. That's T-R-Y-A-R-M-R-A.com slash Cynthia15. You definitely want to check it out. I've been using MitoPure for the last two years, and I've added this to my routine for multiple reasons. Number one, it's a foundational supplement for me and my family. It keeps things simple, and I know that I cannot get enough of urolithin A in my food to derive the same benefits. And if you're not familiarized with urolithin A, it's a signaling molecule, but it's also actively involved in anti-aging, energy production. And I take Timeline because of its remarkable remarkable healthy aging solution that activates key critical cellular pathways in my body. It's a total game changer for healthy aging. I alternate between using the soft gels and powder depending on whether or not I'm traveling. And we know that restoring cellular energy is a key to enduring health. And this is concluded in a recent publication in Nature Metabolism, which is a top scientific journal identifying that newly energized cells may provide many more years of healthy life to people. Yet as we age, we know that cellular energy production naturally declines and reduces our prospects of optimal health and longevity. That's the great thing about Timeline is you can restore cellular energy and support healthy aging. I've noticed the biggest improvements in my energy and sleep levels. We know that Timeline is clinically shown to give our cellular energy generators, the mitochondria, new power. And when taken daily, it replaces aging mitochondria. So it upregulates mitophagy and rebuilds new ones or mitogenesis. Timeline is the only nutrient that can do what it does. So Timeline renews your cells to a more powerful state. My listeners can get 10% off your first order at timeline.com slash Cynthia. That's 10% off at timeline.com dot com slash Cynthia. I know you're going to love this product. It's really overwhelming for a lot of people to, you know, whether it's cognitive dissonance, it's so overwhelming, they can't even entertain the possibility these things happen. You know, Robin O'Brien talked a lot about how corn is largely, there's no other term that I can think of right now, impregnated with this insecticide. So when you're consuming conventionally raised corn, you're consuming this insecticide, which is designed to protect the plant, but obviously is impacting us on a negative level. One of the things I found really interesting when I was reading this book, which the name of which will come to me eventually talking about, I hate when that happens, talking about when you have you know, cows that are producing milk, they're given hormones to produce more milk. So for those of us who have ever breastfed, can you imagine if we were supercharged in breastfeeding, like we were producing twice or three times as much milk. So these cows are dealing with mastitis. 
and inflammation and pus. And I mean, this is all kind of disturbing. And then that's going into the milk supply that's then being sold to stores. And so you just think about the downward impact on our bodies and not to mention the fact these hormones, which can, and in which themselves can also be endocrine disruptors. And so, you know, you talked about how these synthetic hormones can dysregulate our own hormones in our bodies. And again, I, I think again about the metabolic inflexibility and the bulk of the population and just how, what we're exposed to in our food environment, personal care products really has this downstream domino effect. And this is one way that we can be more conscientious, more thoughtful in some of the purchases we're making by not supporting some of these other practices. So it's not, it's actually not good for us. It's also not good for the animals because as you mentioned, a lot of them are kept in very close captivity. They're kept in small close quarters where they might not see any sunlight their entire lives. One of the things about this book that talked about is how highly intelligent pigs are and yeah. how, you know, they're separating mothers and babies at very young ages. So, you know, they're, they're never weaned. They know that that connection piece, these animals are mammals. And so again, I eat animals. I'm not suggesting not to eat animals. I'm just saying like, let's be thoughtful about the practices that we're supporting with our dollars, because that's really the way that we need to think about it, that, you know, where our intention goes, money flows. And so just being really mindful about that as consumers. Yeah. Cause we're always voting for something, right. Mm -hmm. And just making sure that that's one of the things that drives me crazy too, is there's a lot of greenwashing mm -hmm. and humanely raised unless it's certified third party, you know, you can't really be sure there isn't mm -hmm. yet a legal definition of that. And so, like you said, these weaning practices where they're taken from their mamas way too early, or they're, you know, cruel practices where they're dehorning or branding or, and on and on. So that is another huge piece of the puzzle. Or like you said, they're being given, they're being given antibiotics or being raised in such a way that they're, you know, the three times their average size in the breast, you know, <laughs> just because that's the type of meat that we prefer and we buy. Yeah. There's so many things that happen on the way to your plate. And when you're really mindful about them, you can make sure that those things that are happening are also probably in alignment with your values as well. Absolutely. And, yeah. And so regenerative agriculture, I know there's a lot of discussion around this for the benefit of listeners who may be less familiar with that terminology. Let's unpack what that is so that people understand why we want to be supportive of this. This is really getting back to the way things used to be, but with some modifications based on modernization. Yeah, it's so important. Like you said, it's we're going back. It wasn't until, you know, around the 1950s that we thought, oh, wow, our population is going to get out of control. We need to mechanize and centralize and commoditize this production of animals and uh, to do it as quickly as possible. And I think it was started with good intentions, but we totally turned our back on what tradition, what had worked for us and kept our land in the state that we actually needed to be before that. Okay. So it's been estimated that about 60 years left of topsoil is all that we have, right? So that if we continue at this trajectory, supporting practices that degrade our soil, we've actually lost about a third of farmable land in the last 40 years, that there will come a day when our kids can't even feed themselves. So that is really, really devastating and terrifying to me. And so regenerative agriculture at its core is just an agriculture that supports soil health. So there are six practices. Basically, it's like living roots. We're really maximizing the root because the root systems are what feeds the microbes in the soil. Then the microbes in the soil create carbon glues that literally can store the carbon from the atmosphere underneath the ground. 
And it's also like least disturbance. So we're not using pesticides. We're not using tilling. Every time we till that soil, huge amounts of carbon are released. And it's also about animal integration, using animals in a way that is in alignment with nature. Because when you're in a CAFO, they produce huge amounts of manure. There's these manure lagoons, but then it becomes a source of toxicity because it's not managed properly. But when you have an animal on pasture and you bring them around and you rotate them, then their manure is actually fertilizer. It's fertilizer that we're not getting. So animal integration, we're increasing biodiversity. One of our farmers said he sits out on his land and just listens. And he hears about a hundred different species of birds singing, things chirping. You know, he's seeing the dung beetles come back, worms. There's just life. And like a healthy ecosystem is a diverse ecosystem. So we're doing that. And then we're also taking everything in context. We're looking at the land as a personality. We're not blindly applying a set of practices to something and saying, okay, this is what it's supposed to do. No, we're listening. We're listening for feedback and we're changing things. So the difference in most agricultural systems is we're not looking at where did the soil begin and where is it going? And we're not tracking that progress and we're not focused on that really at all. We're focused on yield, creating as much food as we can. And so it's just, it's changing the way we see things entirely, honestly. And the cool thing about regenerative agriculture is it's even one step above sustainability. So I love people who are thinking sustainably. I think it's awesome. I was doing this before I learned about it, but if we were to sustain what we have right now, we'd still be in a lot of trouble. And so regeneration is actually to make something of a higher or more worthy state. So we need to regenerate that land because what's happened is we have all this carbon in the atmosphere right now, which is heating the planet, essentially causing this climate change. But historically, it was underground and we've released it through many different methods. But our farming and agricultural practices are definitely one of them, but it belongs back in the soil. And so if we can take that carbon out through the plants and protect it, get it down into the soil, we can potentially like reverse the climate change. We can improve water holding capacity. All these droughts and floods are the result of soil erosion a lot of times, not the result of not having enough water. And the other cool thing is we can actually restore the nutrient density of our food. It's we have to eat about two times the amount of meat and three times the amount of fruit and four to five times the amount of vegetables that we did in 1940s to get the same level of nutrition. And while a lot of people think the nutrients are just gone because we've been growing too many plants and expecting too much, what's actually happening is the breakdown of that soil biology. Mm -hmm. So these plants have this beautiful relationship with the microbes in the soil. They essentially take carbon out of the atmosphere. They turn it into carbohydrates And then they feed the microbes down there and the microbes say, thank you for that. I'm going to then make these nutrients here in the soil available to you. But when we use pesticides and chemical fertilizers, we kill that life, that microbe, that beautiful transportation system and relationship that they have. And so we actually improve nutrient density too. So regenerative agriculture is a bunch of things, but mainly going back to what we were doing before and making sure that the soil health and environmental health at large is a priority and that biodiversity is a priority and that human health is a priority. No, that's so fascinating. And I I think I could listen to you talk about regenerative agriculture. I'll definitely have to have you back. And I learned a new term today, manure lagoon sounds about as awful as I would imagine that would be as opposed to manure fertilizing 
healthy soil. So on that note, I would love for you to to be able to share with listeners how to connect with you. I've been very transparent. Uh, I was telling Autumn before we started recording that the joke that I always hear about on social media is, you know, what protein bars do you travel with? And so I always say, I travel with Paleo Valley meat sticks. And I say this genuinely, I'm not paid to say this. It is my preferred quote unquote protein bar because it is just meat sticks. You have some amazing products and I'm so very grateful that we were able to connect today and have you share some of your incredible knowledge with the listeners. I know this will be a highly valued podcast, but how can listeners connect with you? How can they find your products, support your mission, connect with your farmers, support your farmers? I love that. Thank you so much for letting me be here. And I wanted to say something about that. The meat sticks. The reason I made them is because I learned about, you know, hydrogenated oils and veggie oils. And I found out that all pretty much all meat sticks on the market are are involve that they take genetically modified corn and create citric acid. And then they coat it in hydrogenated oil and then it melts into the stick. I was like, that's disgusting. So I never envisioned myself being a beef stick manufacturer, but when I found, I really need high quality foods and I do not approve of the way that they're being made now. Yeah. We make paleo Valley. So you can find me at paleovalley.com. You can always email me at autumn at paleovalley.com. We also have a company called wild pastures and that's just our solution to, you know, we didn't want these pasture-raised regenerative meats to be an elitist thing. We think everyone deserves access to high quality food. It could really move the needle for the environment and their own personal health. I hate these kinds of foods are more expensive than a Twinkie. I think it is such a disservice and it's such a travesty. So while pastures takes these farmers, we connect with them who are doing things regeneratively. And then we connect them with you and we deliver them to your door. And most importantly, at wholesale prices, we keep them as low as possible. And it's very hard, but that's our mission. And the last company you can find me at is Wild Pastures Burger Company. We want to meet Americans where they are with fast food. And so it's fast food, but the fries are all cooked in tallow, which is actually beef fat, a traditional beef fat. And then it's all regeneratively raised beef and gluten-free stuff. And we're open in Boulder and hope to be in other areas soon. Oh, please bring it to the East Coast. I, I feel like when, when I travel to Austin and Colorado and Utah, I find that there's a much more open-minded, you know, kind of methodology to food ingredients. I know Austin's one of the few places I've ever traveled to mm-hmm. where, you know, like nearly every restaurant is proud to say we cook in avocado oil, we cook in coconut oil or duck fat or what have you. Whereas most here on the East coast is, you know, still, you know, kind of aligned with the seed oil methodology. And I get it. It's less expensive, but you know, at what cost, you know, would I pay two or three or $5 more for a meal and know that I'm avoiding those awful seed oils? Absolutely. And lastly, I just want to mention that, you know, for me, I wear a continuous glucose monitor and I know what my blood sugar levels are. They're rock solid, stable, you know, I focus on animal-based protein and non-starchy vegetables. Most days when I go to a restaurant, when I can control, you know, if I'm having a steak and I'm having vegetables and, you know, maybe I'm having, you know, an appetizer or dessert or whatever it is consistently, if I ingest seed oils and sometimes they'll cook your steak in a seed oil, or they're using these adulterated oils to finish off foods, it will spike my blood sugar. And so it's been a pretty interesting Mm. slash significant observation to make that, you know, if most, if not all of us were more aware of what these seed oils are doing to our bodies on a kind of a molecular granular level, I think more people would try to look for alternatives and would demand more for themselves. So thank you for the amazing work that you're doing. I'm so grateful to be connected 
And I look forward to having you back because I would actually like to learn more about regenerative agriculture. And obviously, we like to support this, these efforts with our dollars and where our intention goes. So thank you so much for all you do. Well, thank you for letting me be here. It is. Uh, I love your work. I'm a big fan. And I'm just happy that you gave me access to your audience. So thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Everyday Wellness. If you loved this episode, please leave us a rating and review. Subscribe and remember, tell a friend. And if you want to connect with us online, visit the link in the show notes.